morning. Please turn with me to John chapter 19. Death, to die, to expire, to pass on, to perish, to peg out, to push up daisies, to push up posies, to become extinct, curtains, deceased, demised, departed, and defunct, dead as a doornail, dead as a herring, dead as mutton, dead as nits, the last breath, paying a debt to nature, the big sleep, God's way of saying slow down. (laughs) To check out, to shuffle off this mortal coil, to head for the happy hunting ground. To blink for an exceptionally long period of time, to find oneself without breath, to be the incredible decaying man. Worm buffet, kick the bucket, buy the farm, take the cab, cash in your chips. You see, I am up here today to talk to you about death. But it is not a love for the macabre or a desire to be morbid that has me up here speaking to you about death. The reason I am here speaking to you about death is because the Bible has much to say to you on the matter. As an aside, I want you to know that this is the only reason why someone can be up here preaching to you. The preacher's job involves laying a burden on the audience, offering some command or admonition or instruction but the preacher is not free to get up here, pull out whatever soapbox they are passionate about, and preach to you on that. The weight of a preacher's exhortation, correction, and instruction must come from Scripture. If a brother gets up here and what they preach to you isn't backed up by the accurate interpretation of Scripture, then you have my permission to ignore them. And if that is the case with me in this sermon, you have my permission to ignore me. This is crucial that we understand because I do not want you to misunderstand what is going on when brothers and myself get up here to preach. We are not teaching college courses or doing a TED Talk. When we preach, we are here to, by the grace of God, demand something of you. Insofar as the words we say are an accurate communication of the truth of God, you are not free to disregard them, as you might the words of a man. This is the word of the Lord, and you must listen. That being said, I am here to talk to you about death because I am convinced that the scripture has a lot to say to you on the matter. In the word, God has written to us about our own death. 
assuring us of its reality, of its origin, and about how meditating on it will shape our lives. But more than our own deaths, the Bible story places one man's death at the center of it all. His death is unlike any other, and there is no death in all of history past or in the future to come that matters more than his death. And nor should any death concern you more than this one, not your own death, not the death of a loved one, not the death of a hero or a politician will do more to shape your lives than the death of this man. Meditating and trusting on the work accomplished in this man, Christ's death, is sufficient to bring you from death to life. So please follow along with me as I read from John 19, starting in verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Please pray with me. God, we pray that you would speak to us today through your word. Protect my words, 
in the hearts of my listeners from error. Glorify yourself, exalt your Son. Here we are, Lord, to hear from you. May you bring people from death to life, even this day. Let your glorious power be shown. Amen. So the first idea I want to drill in on is how the Bible talks about our own deaths. But before I do so, I do not want you to miss the point of what I am doing. The ultimate focus of this sermon and scripture is not on your own death, but is on the death of Jesus. So as I am working through these things, keep in mind that we are working to lay foundations to better understand the significance of Jesus' own death. So I will work through a series of questions about how the Bible teaches us about our own deaths. First of all, what is death? I realize that this sounds like the sort of question that a pesky toddler might ask, but I am proud to inform you that it is not a pesky toddler standing in the pulpit today, but rather a pesky grown man trying to draw you in. So what is death? Death, biblically speaking, is being cut off from God. This comes in two parts. The most obvious part that we are all familiar with is the physical death. We all know about it. It is the stopping of a body. It is when the activity of a body finally ceases. The body lays there, it stops moving, and it begins the slow process of returning to dust. If the Lord delays, this will happen to each and every one of you. No one here will escape it. Just as it says in Hebrews 9.27, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And we also read in the latter section of Genesis 3.19, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is what will befall each and every one of us, should the Lord tarry. And this is being cut off from God. Our life is a daily gift from God. He is the one who sustains us and gives us our every breath. And when we die, it is him revoking that. As we read in Acts 17, 29, for in him we live and move and have our being. So I want you to take a moment to look down at your own hand and realize that one day this very hand will return to dust. You do not have forever. I do not say this to scare you or to be morbid, but because if you do not keep in mind your own mortality, you will never understand your need for the gospel. There is no wisdom for those who do not understand their own mortality. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. It is in meditating on death that we come to understand the real meaning and purpose in our life. 
but this death is also a picture for us. It is here to help us remember that there is something larger going on. And that larger thing is the second half of what death is. The second half of being cut off from God, which is spiritual death. Spiritual death is being removed from fellowship with your creator. This is what we see from the very beginning of scripture. In Genesis 2.17, we read, and this is the, the very first mention of death in the Bible. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is the, the first mention of death. But then we read after that, Adam and Eve breaking this rule and following that, God casts them out of the garden, out of his presence. He cuts them off from himself. Genesis 3.24 reads, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This verse is an excellent example of how death means being cut off from the presence of God. Literarily, we are lumping together being cut off from the tree of life and being cut off from God's presence at the same time so that when we read this, we can understand the most significant form of death is being cast away from fellowship with our creator. And this is the start of the whole problem of scripture that will eventually culminate in the solution of the gospel. And this reality describes all of us. Apart from being born again, we are spiritually dead and cut off from the presence of God. We, having broken from our fellowship with God, our creator, we never act for his sake. And so our actions, even the best ones, are tainted with selfishness. And we are separated from him who is goodness itself. So we are wicked and fallen and evil. We are spiritually dead and physical death is given to us as a reminder of all of this. And it instructs us about the, about the reality of our spiritual death. And ultimately, this spiritual death that we taste in part will one day culminate in an eternity of separation from God, the fount of all good things. So this is what death is. Death is being cut off from God, both physically and spiritually. But that reminds me of our second pesky toddler question. Why do we die? I advise you first and foremost to avoid the mistakes of our society, the lies that it tells about why we die. You'll hear things like death is just a natural part of life, that it is a simple cycle and that is how the world works. You live and eventually you die. As if this is the way that things should work and should be. 
but the biblical understanding is that death is alien, that it is an invader. It is a glaring black eye on the whole idea of life. It is ugly and it is horrible and it is a sign to us all that there is something profoundly wrong with this world. When God created the world, he declares that it is good and death was not in it. So death is not natural to this world. So what then is the cause of this death if it is unnatural to us? Simply speaking, the cause of death is sin. It is not cancer or sickness or old age or car accident. In a way of speaking, those things are accurate, but the ultimate reason for death is sin. Let's look at what scripture has to say. Genesis 2.17 once again, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. We see that the consequence for disobeying God, for sin, for rejecting God, is death. God is not warning them that they will die because the fruit is poisoned, but that they will die because that is the consequence for disobeying his commands. We learn that death is the penalty for sin. Romans 6.26, for the wages of sin is death. If you sin, death is what you have earned for yourself. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. So the cause of death is sin. We die because we have sinned. We die because we have loved evil, and the penalty of this love is death. It is the rightful conviction of God against a world of criminals, against felony offenders like you and like me. So why then is death the penalty for this sin? This is an interesting question, and you may even come across it as an objection from people in the world. Why is eternal hell, what the ultimate reality of death, the right punishment for lying or stealing or lusting or being selfish? I mean, that just seems a bit hard to understand. We won't cover every possible answer to that objection, but the one we are covering has a beautiful logic to it. It's amazingly sensible. The logic flows like this. Sin is a rejection of God. The heart of any sin is a refusal to submit to God's authority. It is built on the presumption that God is holding back, that he is not good enough, that with what he has given us, we could not be satisfied. Sin in our hearts is like the men who in Jesus' parable in Luke 19 say, we do not want this man to reign over us. Sin is fundamentally a rejection of God. So how does God respond to this rejection? He responds to us rejecting him and rebelling against him by cutting us off from himself which we understand is death. I hope you see this and that it makes sense to you. If you reject God, 
he will reject you and cut yourself off from him. It follows with many things that we understand. If I quit my job, it makes perfect sense that they would stop paying me, that they would stop supporting me. If I steal from my friend, no one would be surprised when he no longer invites me over. And if I revoke my American citizenship, no one will be confused when I am turned away from receiving help when I am detained in another nation. When you reject God, you should not be surprised that the penalty for this is being cut off. When you, by your actions, deny his authority and declare that he is inferior to the things he created, do not be surprised to hear that he will not continue to give you, day by day, the breath which is a gift from him. We die because we reject God in our sin, and he fulfills that rejecting by rejecting us from himself. This death is spiritual and physical and will ultimately continue into eternity. Having worked through some of the biblical theology behind our own deaths, we have laid a foundation to help us understand the significance of Christ's death on the cross. While our deaths, as striking as they may be for us and for those around us, are common, ordinary, and mundane, Christ's death is unlike any other death. It is the death of deaths. Let us look why this death is so unlike any others. First, let's look at the crucifixion. Not unique to Christ, but certainly a rare thing for someone to die by. In John chapter 19, we read in verse 16, So they delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with the two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. This is the first and least significant thing that separates Jesus' death from others. He was crucified. Crucifixion is a brutal form of public execution. It is designed to be horrendous. It is gruesome. By design, it makes a person slowly suffocate themselves while they have to be the instrument of their own torture and puts them on humiliating display. In crucifixion, they take a wooden beam, they set it up with a cross beam going horizontally. Then they would take a person that they are executing, they would nail their hands through the wrists to that cross beam so that they would hang by their arms the weight of their body. Then they drive a single nail through both of the person's feet into the vertical beam. And what this causes is the weight of their body 
to compress their ribs and keep them from being able to breathe. Every breath that they take must be taken by pushing up on the nail in their feet to take the weight off of their arms and allow them to draw in a breath. This means that for the six hours that Jesus was on the cross, his every breath was taken at the price of incredible agony. He did this for over six hours, and then he died. But there is something interesting about this in the scriptural accounts. None of them take the time to explain this process to us, which should raise the obvious question, why? Why don't they explain this in more detail? The first reason is that most people back then were familiar with what this execution method looked like. But that is not enough to explain why the crucifixion accounts never take the time to explain how this works. Any man that I know who was trying to tell a story and produce an effect would draw out these details one by one to evoke some emotion from us, to really strike home to us what Jesus is suffering. But this is not man's story. This is God's story. And he is doing something far more significant here on this cross than suffering one man under the evils of others. So the Bible blows past this, usually summarizing it as they crucified him. And it blows past this because the horrors of crucifixion are a mere backdrop to what God is really doing on that cross. So let us continue on to see what things are going on here. Who is on this cross? If we answer this question, it will start to become clear to us why this death is unlike any other. Because the one who is dying here is unlike any other. Jesus of Nazareth is a man. We read in verse 19 the inscription that Pilate writes above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He was truly a man. He was born to Mary through a miraculous birth, which helps mark him as the unique figure that he is. He is a man born into this world unlike any other. Unlike any other man, he lived his whole life perfectly. In all of his actions, all the days of his life, there was never trace nor stain of sin. If you look at yourself with truth and honesty, you should realize just how incredible that is. Perfectly, every day, every minute, every hour. This man who is on the cross dying, dying, which is the penalty for sin, has never sinned once. Every minute of his life has been perfect. He is innocent and he is here on the cross dying like a criminal, dying like a sinner. 
This man on the cross is powerful unlike any other man. He has done miracle after miracle. He has healed the blind. He has fed thousands, walked on water, made the lame to leap. He has calmed great storms, and he has even raised the dead. His presence on the cross is not a question of whether or not he has the power to avoid it, which means he is suffering there because he has chosen to. John attests to the power of Jesus when he writes in 1018 the words of Jesus. No one takes it from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus is there because he has chosen to lay down his life, even though we see that he has the power to do whatever he wills with it. This man on the cross is also the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Out of all the people in the earth, he is blessed and set apart from them. He is established to be the perfect prophet of God, the perfect priest of God, and the perfect king of God. God has been promising him through the scripture over and over from the very beginning. More than all of that, this man on the cross is unlike any other because he is not just a man. He is called the son of God. He is God himself. He does things that only God can do. And he has a love like only God can love and a perfection like only God has. We read in the beginning of this same gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. The one who is on the cross right now is the same one that has made the very wood that makes that cross. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Further down we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The man dying on this cross is unlike any other, because the man who is dying on this cross is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and he is here dying the death of deaths. So why is this incredible person on the cross? What is he doing here? Why would our God be on the cross being humiliated and tortured and dying a criminal's death? The death of a sinner. He's there for us. We should let that sink in. He is on that cross, the God of the universe, for us, for our sakes. 
He is suffering and dying on that cross because in doing so, he's doing more than just being crucified. He is taking the weight of sin and wrath that we deserve. That wrath is being poured out on him so that whoever believes in him may be saved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53.6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And later in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You have rejected God, and because of that, you are dead and dying, awaiting hell. You are cut off from God because of your sin. But God, but God came down in the flesh and is dying a death that he did not deserve in your place. He is there on that cross suffering the tremendous wrath of God for you and for me. His death is unlike any other because he is taking away the sins of those who believe in him. Because he is a righteous man bearing the penalty for wicked ones. Bearing the penalty of wretched sinners like you and me. If you trust this man, if you trust in God, in this atoning death, you will be saved. That's the only price to enter in. To trust in it. Trust and cry out and you will be born again to a new life. One that is never ending. You'll never see real death because you will be hidden with Christ. So at the end of this work, at the end of this substitution, this death in our place, we read in John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word he says here in the Greek is, to tell us die. It's a beautiful word which means it is finished. The work is done. Sing for joy. Every last one of your sins is paid for in that moment. The debt is cleared and you can go free. You will never have to be cut off from God because Jesus did that for you. It is finished. Then in Matthew 27, verses 50 through 54, we get a beautiful picture of what this death accomplishes. 
starting in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. This, the man suffocating to death, cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When this should be our reaction. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and saw what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. His death is unlike any other because his death brings life to all who trust in him. The curtain is torn in two. The curtain, the symbol of being cut off from God's presence so that we might look at this passage and see Jesus dies and makes a way for us to come back to life, back to fellowship with our creator. I warn you, death is coming for you. Turn and repent, for you do not have long. This is the most amazing gift you will ever receive, that Christ stands on your behalf. Receive it with joy and trust in Christ. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, we must meditate on the reality of our own deaths, our spiritual death before we were saved, and the physical death that will one day bring an end to our work on this earth. But more than that, we should meditate on the death of Christ day in and day out. Every morning, we should focus on the work that Jesus has done in our place. This is the gospel. This is our good news. It is how we are saved. And by meditating on this, we should die to ourselves and die to sin. We should see ourselves in our own self-interest as nailed on that cross. We should see our sin as nailed on that cross so it seems a ridiculous thing to us to continue sinning, to continue living after ourselves. Meditate on this until your heart can sing with joy in the deepest distress because your God has carried away every last sin. Galatians 2.20 reads, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. Please pray with me. We thank you, Lord, 
We are not worthy. Your love is mighty. Make us sing with this truth.